Father, we thank you for what you've done already, for what you've spoken already. So, Father, we just pray as we, just in your presence, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your voice. Lord, I want to pray this morning, Lord God, as we just explore your word, that you would uh, keep us grounded in your word, keep us filled with your spirit, Lord. Lord, pray, Father, that just, Lord, our theology would be correct, and Lord, also, Lord, we'd be able just to affirm our true allegiance to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So, well, you see, it, it wasn't called the Damascus Road for nothing. Saul's life was just radically changed. The man who had set out to hunt Christians down in the synagogue was now a follower of Christ and had been commissioned by God to share the gospel with both the Gentiles and the Jews. And so today we're going to see what Saul's new life was going to be like. So, Bible's open. Acts chapter 9, and we are in verse 19, just the second part of verse 19, and it begins, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learnt of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gate in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Just stop there for a moment. So Saul's visit to Damascus turned out to be very different from anything either he or anybody else had, had expected. Saul, who had intended to hurt the Christians in Damascus, now entered the synagogue preaching Christ's Christian truth. So rather than hunting down Christians, he's trying to recruit them. Jesus, he proclaims, is the Son of God. And notice that Saul is straight in there. He's immediately beginning to share about his faith in Jesus Christ. He's telling the Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament. But Saul's original mission to persecute Christians was so well known that there's some confusion going on. You see, all those who heard him were amazed, and yet they're just wondering, is this really Saul? And ironically, the person who would have been voted least likely to become a Christian by his rabbinic school now stood as a vocal proponent of Jesus Christ. However, there are many of those looking on who wanted to believe that this was a case of mistaken identity. It seemed more likely than the actual truth. But there's no denying the fact that the man who is now preaching Christ in the synagogue was the same Paul who had come to Damascus to kidnap Christians. And God had work for him to do. Now earlier on in this chapter, in verse 16, we read how God warned Saul that his preaching would lead to suffering. And it takes less than two weeks 
for the bewilderment of the Jewish leaders to erupt into a murderous plot and a credible threat is made against Saul's life, resulting in a further ironic twist to Saul's conversion story. This persecutor, who is now a preacher, is now being persecuted. The hunter has become the hunted. Of course, Saul finds out about the plot and with the help of some ingenious thinking from local Christians, he escapes from Damascus over the city wall, hiding in a basket from the Jewish leaders who just want him dead. And Saul, a man who once held such a high place, a place of great dignity, in fact, so much so that he even refused to get his hands dirty in the stoning of Stephen, now experiences a humiliating rescue operation. And we see right from the very beginning of Saul's ministry, his Christian ministry is marked by difficulty, by persecution, and by a murder attempt. And throughout his life, we see how this great apostle is hated, he's hunted, He's plotted against by both Jew and Gentile. And as you read through the book of Acts, you will see how opposition, how persecution just increases and increases until in the end, he ends up as a prisoner in Rome. This is this man's life. But for Paul, or Saul, and by the way, I'm going to use that word interchangeably. I just can't help it, okay? So if I say Paul, I could mean Saul, or Saul, it could mean Paul. But they're both the same person, okay? So for Saul, it was a privilege. That's his word, a privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, 4 to 11, Paul tells his own story. In fact, he's referring back to these events in Acts chapter 9. He, these are his words. He, he recounts, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, it is so evident that from Paul's words here in Philippians that this man has got no regrets, none whatsoever. Even when the suffering, even with murder threats, even with persecution, he endures it all. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worth it. He's worth it. 
In fact, in, he insists in 2 Timothy chapter 3.12 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be persecuted. And it begs the question, are we seeing persecution in our lives? We don't go out looking for it. But it's part of the Christian life. That's why I've been praying, Lord, get our theology right. Let's have good theology of what God's words teach us. See, the radical change in Saul's life is utterly incredible. As a young man, he was so sure of himself. He, he came from the best family. He knew the Bible back to front. He was, he was discipled in law-keeping. He lived a righteous life. He was a defender of the religion of his fathers. He gave his whole life to God, but none of these things satisfied him or give him the acceptance with God. But actually, it's much worse than all of that because he was utterly and completely wrong. It's like he'd just come out of the examination room and he's thinking he's done amazingly well. He's convinced he's coming out with an A star passed with flying colors and to his shock, he discovers on the Damascus road that God has given him a big fat F. And like religious people today, he's got enough morality to keep himself out of trouble, but not enough to get himself to heaven. You see, it certainly wasn't bad things that kept Saul away from Jesus, but it meant for him to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he had to lose his religion in order to find his salvation. And what about you? What are you relying on? Really, what are we actually relying on in our lives? Is it our lovely, respectable families? Perhaps our fine Christian heritage, our morality, our giving, our involvement within church life, or perhaps our Bible knowledge? Listen, God says that all of your self-effort, all those things you do to try and make yourself look good before God, that those work-based righteousness, they add up to an F grade. They are worthless, they are useless, those things make God sad, not happy. And what you do, those self-disciplines that we just try so hard, will never reach God's perfect standard. It will never get you into heaven. And like Paul, you can be so sincere and yet so wrong. And his problem was that he was using the wrong measuring stick. You see, he compared himself to the standard set by men, not by God. And when he looks at himself and he compares himself to those around him, he seems pretty righteous. In fact, he's pretty impressive until one day he saw himself as compared to Jesus Christ. And it's then that he realizes that everything has to change. His evaluation of himself, his own values, he has to abandon his own work-based righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when, when, when Saul met the risen Jesus on the Damascus rose, he put his trust in him. He became a child of God. It was a miracle of grace. Have you experienced that? Touch of God. God's grace in your life. You realize that actually all that self-effort is getting you nowhere. It is God's gift to you through Christ, by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
See, when Paul realized the futility of his good works and how his sinful, actually his own righteousness was, Paul lost something. And he gained so much more. In fact, Paul comes to the conclusion that we all must come to with a curious bit of gospel mathematics. The question is this, if Saul loses everything, and he did, he lost his reputation as a scholar, he lost his, his prestige as a religious leader, all of that stuff is gone. Even his friends now want him dead. Not looking good. So what's he got left? The answer? Everything. Because he's found the greatest treasure of all. Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul gained far more than he lost. Listen, so can you. In fact, it is so great that he considered all these other things literally rubbish. They're garbage in comparison. And... And this gives him the most amazing joy. His life does not now depend on the cheap things of this world, but on the eternal values that are found in Jesus Christ. The words of Jim Elliot are just so perfect for here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what made the difference? He knows Jesus. He knows Jesus. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3.10, he adds, not only does he know Jesus, but he says he wants to know Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to be a strange thing to say because how can both of those things be true? And yet, very often we'll say we know someone when we've just met them or we know someone when we've been introduced to them. But it's a very different thing when you are in close relationship with someone because as time goes on, we just learn more and more about them. Listen, this is the same with our life in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are a Christian, you can say, I know Jesus. But at the same time, you will spend the rest of your life, in fact, you will spend the rest of eternity getting to know him better. Actually, believing things about Jesus will save no one. In fact, the most knowledgeable believer of all is probably Satan himself. Listen, there's probably nobody in this room who knows more about God and Jesus than Satan does. But he hates. He hates him. See, knowing with your head will not change you. So what will? It is the power of the Spirit of God that changes you. And listen, if the power of God's spirit does not flow into your life and change you, you do not belong to Christ. Romans 8, 14. All who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. And the mark of a son and a daughter of God is divine power and the Holy Spirit-filled life. And it's to experience Christ's resurrection power within your life. And listen, this power is transformative. It will change everything. It changes your perspective of life. When those troubles and those challenges and that persecution comes, it just looks different. So how do we experience this power? 2 Peter 1.3 gives us the answer. It says, through our knowledge of 
him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Now, this is not head knowledge. This is another type of knowledge. And to understand this, we need to put ourselves in a, in a situation of, of powerlessness. So you only imagine for a moment, if you can, imagine you're a prisoner or a hostage in somewhere like Iraq or Iran, and, and, and you've lost all hope. In fact, death just seems inevitable. You've given up hope of ever seeing your family, ever seeing your friends again. And then, and then you hear that a deal has been done, and there's a prisoner exchange has been negotiated. And then you, yes, you, you're pulled out of the line of hostages, and you're led away to freedom. Listen, it's not mere knowledge at that point it's not mere knowledge when the soldier points at you it is power hope surges through your body it affects all of you listen in that moment life is restored why because you have been called and divine power for life and for Christ-likeness, even in the most difficult and challenging of situations, flows from the knowledge of your calling in Christ. It's based on there. And it is knowing that God has approached you and God has said to you, come with me. I'm going to give you life. In fact, more than that, I am going to put my power within you. And as the Spirit of God takes center place within your life, He is all that you need. And as the, 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 the only knowledge that carries saving power is promised knowledge. In other words, we, are, we, receive, we can receive saving, life-changing power when the promise comes and you know that you are included. This is for you. And salvation is, is personal. It's God's call over your life. So to live in the knowledge of Christ, you must know and you must believe that you are included, that, that this promise is for you, it's for me. And yes, it's undeserved. Yes, it's given freely through Jesus Christ, the one who died, who took my sin on the cross, dealt with it all. The one who rose again from the dead, who defeated the power of sin, the, the, the power of death, the power of Satan, the one who reigns victorious over all. He did it for me. And that needs, you need to get this. It needs to hit you in your heart. And this is what Saul got. And because he got this, he counted it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because he treasured Christ more than anything else. So what about us? Is he our greatest treasure? Is he? Luke carries on in, in verse 26. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, it says he tried to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. Not believing that he really was a disciple, 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now the Christians in Jerusalem were having a few problems. They, they were understandably cautious, so Saul's received a really frosty reception. And Paul tries to break into this fellowship, but they just, well, they just won't accept him. And in their minds, probably what they're thinking is that there was, is there any chance that Paul's conversion is just simply a trap? It could have been that Saul's clever, this is a clever sort of devious plot by Saul to worm his way into this fellowship and, and then discover who they are so that he can destroy the church completely from the inside out. And it would appear that most of them just don't believe that he was a disciple of Jesus, never mind an apostle who has seen the risen Savior. There's just too many unanswered questions. It just creates this atmosphere of deception, atmosphere of suspicion, and atmosphere of fear. So it's hard to underestimate the courage and the faith that Barnabas has here. So while his brothers are shaking with fear behind closed doors, Barnabas quickly does his homework and then he says to himself, well, this doesn't seem so far-fetched. God can even draw his enemies to himself. So Barnabas steps in as a go-between and he helps the Jerusalem church to accept Saul. And we first met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, known as the son of encouragement. And this man just had this natural, or perhaps I should say supernatural um, position, which he was of, just of encouragement. He just would go alongside and just encourage people and just build them up. Listen, this is the gift of the Spirit. A gift of the Spirit that sometimes we underestimate within our churches. In fact, sadly, it's sometimes very lacking within churches today. And we're very quick to run people down, very quick to criticize, often very slow to build people up. And like Saul, we all need advocates. We need friends. We need voices of encouragement who will speak into our lives, who will connect us into fellowship Listen, there's also something that you and I should be doing for others as well. To looking out for our disconnected brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, there are many of them across our city who just need love. They need encouragement. They need to be welcomed in. Luke carries on, verse 29. He talked and debated, again, Saul talked and debated with the Hellenistic, Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Not very friendly. When the believers learnt of this, they took him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Now, it's interesting that, that Saul is naturally drawn to the Hellenistic, these, these um, Grecian Jews. In fact, these were his people, he, he knows their background. He, he used to be one of them. In fact, it was, it was the, the Hellenists who had engineered the trial and the death of Stephen. So it may have been that Saul felt obliged to pick up the mantle that Stephen had put down. But very quickly, what actually does rise up is opposition once again. 
And then twice in very close succession, Saul's life is in danger. A price is put upon his head, and once again the Christians step in the town, step in, they help him to escape. He goes to, they take him to Caesarea, then on to Tarsus, so that he can continue to preach the gospel freely. But by now it's very, very clear that Saul has been completely accepted by the leaders of this church, of the church in, in Jerusalem. And Saul's experiences, I think, are a clear reminder to us of two responses that you will receive to the gospel. Firstly, you hopefully will see people just embrace it. People who respond with repentance and faith and in love and just accept the message of the gospel, but also you'll see those who will fight against it in hate. However politely they sometimes may do that, but faith means that you cannot avoid persecution. A life of faith walks the age of suffering. And there are a number of lessons I think we can learn from Saul in these few verses. The first is this, avoid persecution if you can, but welcome it if you can't. See, persecution is not something that you seek out. It should be a last resort. There's no place for would-be martyrs. It's not something you're looking for. But if you can't avoid it, welcome it. Because secondly, God's grace will always be equal to any test that you will ever face. God's grace will always be equal to any test that we will ever face. Listen, God will only allow what you are able to carry. That's what God's word says. It may not feel like it sometimes, but even if stuff feels to weigh down upon us, God by his spirit will give us the strength that we need to see ourselves. We've heard testimonies already, have we not? Trust him. Lean into him. And then thirdly, Remember, it is, not you, it is not you, but God that they hate. Don't take it personally. When you're out sharing your faith or when you're just talking or just being around people and they react against you, don't take it personally. See, a spirit-filled believer will show a righteousness that sometimes this world just hates. The truth is, they hated Jesus. He took them to a cross. So why, as his followers, should it surprise us that it would be any different for each of us? There is a cost in following Jesus Christ. As some of you know, I like to do a bit of running. And from time to time, I do these sort of very long runs. So, for example, this year I ran Chester Ultra, which is 50 miles, uh, sort of a loop around our city. Now, if I was to ask you next year, maybe March, April time, to come and, and, and just watch me and, and maybe give me a little bit of support, I think there's probably some of you here would be up for that, potentially. Not many, but maybe a few. Um, however, if I was to ask you to come and run with me, <laughs> I, I'm suspecting the numbers may go down. Am I right? Oh, you think they'll go higher? <laughs> so anybody up for it? 50 miles, March time next year, go for it. Sorry? 
Yes, of course, you can take it with you. There's no problem at all, yeah. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Francis Chan writes, there are millions of people who call themselves Christians because they believe that the Christian life is about admiring Christ's example, not realizing it is a call to follow him, whatever the cost. You know, when you run 50 miles in one day, painful. I've got to confess, last year I got to a point where I shed a little tear halfway around. I was suffering. It's a cost. It's a cost that comes. As Christ's disciples, you must love him more than your own life. No matter what it costs. Do not deny his truth or his ways. If you are ashamed to confess him in order to avoid, to avoid trials or persecution, it can only mean that you love your life more than you love him. In fact, the New Testament could not be clearer about this. You're not just to believe in the crucifixion. It says you are to be crucified with Christ. If you were to listen only to the words and to the voice of Jesus, if you were to read only the words that came out of his mouth, you would get a very clear understanding of what he expects his followers to do. However, if you listen only to modern preachers and writers, you would get a completely different understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And there are too many Christians have been taught that if they come to Jesus, it will cost them nothing. And people believe it. There are even those who have been taught that if they pray a prayer and ask Jesus into their heart, that life is going to get better for them. All the problems are going to go away. Listen, Jesus taught the complete opposite. Let me show you. This is what Jesus actually says in Luke 14, verse 25. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Just let us sink in for a moment. Verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundations and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, everything you have, everything is everything, cannot be my disciple. Those are tough words. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. And Saul understood this. 
Of course, grace and mercy and forgiveness is central to the gospel. Listen, there is untold blessing in following Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Jesus is truthful. He is upfront about the costliness of the gospel. And this message has been neglected and ignored in many of our churches today. So listen, being a Christian is the surrendering of your ideas and your flesh to the greater purposes of God. It means dying to yourself and putting Christ first. It will cost you everything. Are you prepared to go there? But in giving everything, you will find unspeakable joy and eternal hope. I talk to a lot of people and they, they struggle with joy. And I've been just been mulling over these verse, this verse, particular verse, and, and I wonder, is it because we just don't surrender everything? We don't know the joy. You trying to live with one foot in the world and trying to keep everything happy and keep, particularly keeping num- number one, me, happy. And then you think you come to church or you do your spiritual stuff in another. Listen, you separate those things out. There's no joy in that. No joy. It's gone. You wonder why you haven't got joy? If you give everything to him, you die to yourself. You put it to death. The old nature, the old self, it's gone. And you step into Christ and in him you're a new creation, a new man in Christ, a new woman in Christ. You give everything to him. Jesus says you will have joy. You want joy? But there's a cost. There's a cost. Are you willing? Are you willing Let me illustrate this with a story that Francis Chan tells about a visit he made to the underground church in China. And during his trip, he asked them the question about persecution. And each person stood up one after the other. They told stories. They told stories of what they had endured. Some of them told about the times they had to hide in the walls because the government officials were coming. Others told about how they had to run from gunshots. But every one of them, he says, was, was laughing. It was just a party to them. It didn't face them because they just expected it. And as they prayed, they were screaming out to God to take them to the most dangerous places. They're praying, Lord, I want to suffer for you. I don't want to go to a safe place. I just don't. Please, I want to be counted worthy to die for you. Have you ever prayed like that? I haven't. But this is how they prayed. Listen, if you get a group of people like that, nothing is going to stop them. <laughs> nothing is going to stop them. This was the way the early church behaved. It's the way the church is supposed to be. It is an unstoppable force, ready for anything. 
One pastor tells about a time that, that they, were, they had a little bit more freedom, religious freedom in, in, in China, and, and so they decided to test the waters and build a church above ground. His church grew to a couple of thousand. Then the government came in, shut the whole thing down, hauled him off and the other pastors away. However, he says, in hindsight, he was actually really grateful for the persecution because it brought them back to their DNA. By having a large service of people, people just listened to the sermon. They became accustomed to sitting and just listening. And he says, I had a hard time stirring the people into action. They'd just become too comfortable. And that had made them ineffective. Sort of sobering, isn't it? As we sit here on a Sunday morning. I wonder what they would say about us. What they'd think about us. Luke finishes, or at least the bit I'm finishing with anyway, in verse 31. It says this, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. And verse 31 is, is Luke's second summary statement. The first was made back in chapter 6 and verse 7. And we see how persecution has gone up a gear. We see, that, but as a result of that, that the gospel is being spread beyond Jerusalem. And now, and now we have seen the conversion of the chief, prosecutor, chief persecutor, but he is now going out spreading the gospel. I'm being persecuted as a result. And Luke is highlighting a wonderful truth. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the church was built up, that the church is strengthened, and as the church walks in the fear of the Lord and in the Holy Spirit, it knows peace. Even among opposition, it knows peace and it grows. It grows in number. For now, the geographical center is still Jerusalem, as it was in Acts chapter 1. And the message, however, is going out just as Jesus has said, just as he has promised. But soon the center will move to Antioch, not Jerusalem. Soon the key leader will be Paul, not Peter. But the gospel will be taken to the uttermost parts of the world. So even though God's work, men and women will change, the work goes on and the message of the gospel remains true. Hasn't changed. 2,000 years later, here we are. Listen, our message is still the same. This book contains everything you need to know for life, for living, for eternity. God's message does not change. Stood the test of time and will stand the test of time. And you and I have the privilege of being part of this great work, this great mission. Let's stand together. Let's pray. There's no getting away from the challenge of these words. Perhaps as we've just listened, maybe we need to change the way we're praying.
what we're asking God for. As our country is going through such change at the moment, there is turmoil on political for, on, the, on the political side. Listen, I don't think we've seen the end of it. It's not prophetic. I'm just telling what I'm seeing. <laughs> it's, not, it's not rocket science to work it out. We don't know how the church is going to be treated in the future, maybe even the near future. But there's something about persecution and opposition that goes and sits alongside a walk of faith. And this is not a popular message. (laughs) It's not. We tend to skip over it. But this is God's word. And we either believe it or we don't. We just can't pick the good bits out. But listen, as you walk in faith, and yes, you will receive opposition, you will receive persecution, you will know the power of God working through you. As a church, we know God's power. As we stand up for truth, as we stand up for the gospel, as we declare it with confidence. So I want to pray. I want to pray for God's spirit to come upon us. To give us the strength that we need. First of all, just to receive God's word, to apply it to our hearts. I want you to go home. I want you to, to, to ponder these things. Don't just think, yeah, nice, fine, yeah. No. Just spend some time. Listen, go home and check it out. If I actually, have I got it right? You were told to go and say, what's, what's, what's God's word say? Listen, if God's word is saying what I believe it is saying, we need to apply that to our lives and we need to walk in it, whatever it costs. So for some of you, it may be a chance, a time to get down on your knees again before God and just surrender. But I want to encourage you to do that this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Take some time out of your day this week. Take a, take a morning off if you can, an evening off in God's presence. I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, shape us. You've called us. You direct us. So Lord, help us to be men and women of the word and of the spirit, to apply this to our hearts and to our lives and to live in the fullness of it. Lord, that we may have joy, but Lord, more than that, that we may give you glory. Yes. <laughs> or that you get the glory and get the honor. Lord, thank you for this testimonies, the stories, Lord, that we've heard already. And Lord, we want more. But Lord, we want to be, we want to be truly yours with everything, whatever the cost, Lord. <coughs> Do a work of grace in our hearts in our minds, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.